please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We're starting a brand new series called, uh, or started last week called Rescued, and we're continuing that. And while you're finding Exodus 2, let me just say a quick word about two things. Um, next Sunday night at 6.30, anybody who'd like to come can come on up to the church. We're having another Go West night. And what we realize, there's probably several hundred people that um, have come into our church family since we really spent time talking about the West Campus and what God was doing out there, how to get plugged in. So we're having another Go West night. And it's specifically, it's for anybody, but if you'd like to come, if you're new to the church family, we'd love to tell you all about this new campus going out at West and how you can be plugged in into it. Also, before we're done here today, at the very end of our service, we're gonna be having our, our elder affirmation vote today. This is something we do this weekend every year as new elders come onto our team and other elders rotate off who have completed their term. But um, I'll tell you more about that at the conclusion of our service, but that's gonna be the last thing that we do here today and I wanted to give you a heads up. Hey, as we get started today with what we're gonna talk about, I want you to look at the screen behind me and I want you to look at this picture. How many of you recognize this picture? All right, who, 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 you guys know exactly what this is, right? So this is Charlton Heston, his portrayal of Moses, and, and it's probably the most famous, or at least maybe the most iconic picture of Moses. I mean, a lot of people, when you think about this is it. Now, question for you, who has seen this movie from 1956? All right, can I confess something to you? I've never seen it. I know every service has given me this shocking, like, like what do you mean? I, I told my, my children the other day, I said, hey, before our rescued series is over, I want us as a family to sit down and watch the Ten Commandments. And it's gonna be a challenge with my children because it was made in 1956, all right? The second they heard that, they're like, 1956? Let me tell you about the challenge in my home, okay? And maybe your children are the same way. Like when we have a movie night and we're like, what do you guys want to watch? And I'll throw a suggestion out there. Of course, my, my movie library goes much farther back than theirs. And, and, I, and I'll say, hey, how about this movie? And they'll ask me every time, when was it made? <laughs> do your kids do this? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, like 96 or 97. Nope, was it even in color, Dad? 96, are you? That's not that long ago. <laughs> but this picture right here from the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, it's probably the most famous portrayal of Moses ever. It's an iconic image. And it's uh, Moses standing in front of the Red Sea as it's parted and the Israelites are going through on dry land. And many people would look at this moment and they would say that this picture captures the most critical moment of Moses' life. Right there in front of the Red Sea. That's the moment. That's, that's the crux of it all. Others might say, no, when he's coming down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, that is the most critical moment of Moses' life. But could I maybe throw out a different suggestion? I think that the most critical moment in Moses' life actually happens in Exodus chapter 2. And it's not this picture, but it's actually this picture. Right there. I think this picture of a little baby... Um, in a basket along the reeds of the river represents the most critical moment of Moses' life. And let's read about it, and here's why. Look at verse one of chapter two. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now why in the world would she have to 
hide her baby. If you were here last week and you learned in chapter one that this evil order of Pharaoh was that all the Hebrew boys on the day of the birth must be put to death. And then when the midwives rebelled against that, he just said, all of the people of Egypt are required, everybody in the land, that if you come across a Hebrew boy, you throw him in the Nile River. That's why she had to hide her son. Verse three, but when she could hide him no longer, um, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, there, there's a number of details that we could point to, but I want to point to one. What was it about Moses that made his parents see in him something different? The Bible says that they could tell he was a fine child. Some translations of the Bible say he was a beautiful child. And in the New Testament says he was no ordinary child. I don't know exactly what it was about Moses on the day of his birth because to me, every parent thinks their child's special on the day of their birth. Look at this baby, you know? But there was something about Moses. Whatever it was, it caused them to understand that there was a special anointing, a special calling on, on Moses' life. Whatever it was, they, they, they hid him to escape the harm, which I believe they would have done regardless of whether they saw something different in him or not. But after three months go by, it became obvious that we cannot keep this child a, a, a secret anymore. Now just imagine the day they're living in, every single person is a spy. I mean, at a bare minimum, all the people of the land were mandated reporters of unauthorized births. But at a maximum, they're all the personal assassins of Pharaoh. Throw that kid in denial. And so when it became obvious that they could not hide Moses after these first three months, um, they needed to take some kind of action. But what I find interesting is that the Bible tells us that Moses' parents were not afraid. They were not afraid of Pharaoh's order. So their actions are not motivated by fear at all. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, the New Testament in several places fills in some details about Moses' early life. Like Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So the New Testament tells us that Moses' parents were acting out of faith, not fear. It was faith that kept him hidden. It was faith that drives the actions of his mother to put him in the Nile River. Now, I believe this, that if we draw this conclusion that Moses' mom was like helpless or distraught or completely just out of herself, it's like, I don't know what to do. This is so overwhelming. I'm just gonna put my baby in the basket, send him down the Nile and hope for the best. If that's our impression of what happened, then I believe that we are not giving the text or the supporting scriptures in the New Testament enough thought. They were not afraid of the king's order. That's very obvious. So their actions were not driven by fear, so they had to have been driven by something else. And that something else had to have been faith. It was faith that drove her behavior. So there's this belief among Moses' parents that he's not an ordinary kid. There is something special about him and they believed in that and that was stronger than their fear of the king. So these actions that they take by getting a basket, putting tar around it, making it watertight and, and putting the baby, um, just not in the middle of the river where it can just take it, but among the reeds along the shore so it doesn't float off and, and placing it somewhere where people are going to find it. 
and also posting Moses' sister as a lookout. These are all very deliberate actions that were driven along by their faith. And that's kind of hard for us to understand, but let me tell you, they were living in evil, messed up days. So she trusted God, whatever the action was going to be, that God was going to take care of Moses. Now, here's something that's very interesting that I find in the text, that she put Moses in a basket. Do you know the Hebrew word for, in the text here, that we get the basket from, the type of basket, it is the exact same word used to describe Noah's ark. In fact, there's only two times in the whole Old Testament that this word is used, Noah's ark, and the basket that, that, that Moses was placed in. In fact, some translations of the Bible don't even call it a basket like the NIV does. They call it an ark. Baby Moses was placed in an ark. And let me just tell you that I believe that every Hebrew that would be reading the text caught the significance of this word. Just as the hand of grace was on Noah, a deliverer bringing salvation, so it was with the deliverer Moses. This is, not an, this is not an accident that this same word was used for both. Look at verse five. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, whose sister? It's Moses' sister. She steps up and asks Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Well, how do you like that? I mean, let's be honest, this is messed up. I mean, we're li they're living in messed up times. The days are evil. Just how evil? The very fact that these kind of actions were felt necessary tells us just how desperate and evil the days were. But in spite of all of that, you kind of have to admit, things worked out pretty well, all things considering. Here you have a daughter, the daughter, of the most powerful man in the world, Call it her mothering instincts, but she finds Moses and she has a very soft heart towards this Hebrew baby. The Bible says she hears him crying and, and it, she just has pity on him and she seems to know right away that this is a Hebrew baby. Now there's a lot of reasons why we could point to saying she knew he was a Hebrew baby, but honestly from her point of view, what she sees is an abandoned kid. Who else but a Hebrew mother would abandon her kid? This wasn't behavior of the Egyptians. They were under no such rules like the Hebrews. So she finds an, finds an abandoned kid and she makes this connection. And I hate it that my mind wanders down these paths, but it makes you wonder. Her servants were walking along the edges of the river. Kind of makes me wonder if this is not the first baby they've ever found. Now think about it. The rule of the law, the law was, baby boy, you have to throw him in the Nile River. I mean, is it beyond the scope to think that this is a first? But it is the first time she found a baby alive, I would say. 
And when she did, her heart just, just melted. And it makes me wonder, and this is all speculation. The text doesn't tell us this. This is all speculation. I wonder if there's something going on with Pharaoh's daughter here. Uh, maybe she's like, my dad's nuts for making these people kill their babies. She wouldn't be the first daughter to think her dad was nuts. Whatever it was, God used the tears of baby Moses to prick the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. That's what's happening here. God uses her for Moses' protection. God uses her to create a safe environment for Moses to grow up. And God uses her to position the rescuer of his people in her home. And you take Moses' sister, I mean, where is she in all this? She is strategically placed close by, and when she sees all this unfold, she aggressively steps forward. I think, hey, I got an idea for you. I'm gonna go out on a limb with me here. What if I go find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter's like, that's a great idea. And so Moses sister does what every sister would do. She goes and gets her mother. Mom, you are not, listen, we prayed about this. You are not going to believe what's going on here. Pharaoh's daughter is the one who found Moses and, and her heart was, was just open to caring for him. And I stepped forward and said, can I go get a Hebrew woman? And she said, yes, do that. Mom, it's you. I'm picking you. You need to come get, get, get your son. And guess what? On top of all that, she's going to pay you. How many of your moms are like, why don't you pay me for being a mom? All right. <laughs> Monica's hands first one. I didn't even have that out of my mouth and Monica's like right here. <laughs> I mean, it, it worked out. I mean, and so, and so uh, Moses goes back to his mother and it seems to indicate that very same day. So they're only separated for a few hours probably. And then she gets to care for it. Now, now most likely... Um, Moses was with his mom for probably his first three years of life. Um, probably she kept him until he was weaned. And during that time frame and that culture, that, we know that was till about age three or four. And then at that point, she probably took him back to Pharaoh's house where Pharaoh's daughter officially adopted him and named him Moses. And it's a very significant name because Moses means to draw out so she's like, I drew you out of the water. Your name is gonna be Moses and it's a very intentional name. Now just think about all of these details. God raised up the deliverer of the Israelites right under Pharaoh's nose. Isn't that how God works sometimes? Now I don't know exactly you know, if God was thinking this or not, but here you have Pharaoh who I believe was under the influence of satanic oppression to do this evil order. And, 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 and here you have Pharaoh going, I'm gonna do this order and I'm gonna kill all the Hebrew, but I'm gonna just, I'm gonna control them and make them slaves and all this stuff. And, and God's like, oh, watch what I'm gonna do. I, I'm gonna raise up your demise right under your nose and you're gonna feed them and shelter them and care for him. And that for me anyway, brings up a very important truth, a very um, important principle anyway. There's some things about this here that help me maybe just a little bit better understand God. And you know, there are times that we look around and we've all been there and maybe you feel this way right now, but you look around and you're like, everything is falling apart. 
If you've ever felt that way, or if you're feeling that way right now, we need to remember that God's ways don't always look like our ways. In fact, there are times, I would say many a times, where things are happening that are just downright puzzling to us. And I can tell you that there have been many a times that my prayers have started just like this. God, I don't know what you're doing. Or Lord, I cannot see right now whatever it is that you are doing. And I certainly don't understand why things are transpiring the way they are. But I trust you. I trust you. Full disclosure, that prayer has come out of my mouth many a time since Thursday night. I'm talking about God's providence. This concept of how he cares for you and guides you through life and works through your life to accomplish his purposes. God's providence. And it's often mysterious and it's often comes without understanding and it often is one of those times that later in life it starts to make sense. Great example of God's providence are the circumstances that led to the Israelite nation even being started and even finding themselves in Egypt. You might recall the details from Genesis that Joseph's brothers were very jealous of him and so they kidnapped him and they threw him in a dry uh, cistern and they decided to kill him but then they later um, decided to sell him into slavery. And so here you have Joseph. Just imagine his point of view. He's sitting at the bottom of this well and he can hear what's going on at the top. He can hear about them talking about killing him and selling him off into slavery. And, and, I, and I, I gotta think that Joseph at the bottom of that well is like, God, what are you doing? I know about the promises to, to my dad and grandpa and great-grandpa. You're gonna, but what are you doing right now? I, I don't get it. Years later, Joseph is gonna find himself in another prison cell, accused of something he did not do. Probably sitting in that cell going, God, I don't understand what you're doing here. It would be years later for the complete picture of God's providence to become clear. And we know that it finally made sense because towards the end of Genesis, um, Joseph, many years later, says to his brothers, you, what you intended to do was to harm me all those years ago. But let me tell you what was actually happening. God was using it to do something incredible, the saving of many lives. God's providence. Is that how you see your walk with the Lord today. For me, most of the time, it's when I look backwards, I see what God was doing. It's really difficult at times to discern it in the moment. It's hard to see sometimes his guiding providential hand, especially, especially when nothing makes sense. But I've had to learn, and I hope you are learning as well, and many of you have, that in those moments you say, Lord, I trust you anyway. It doesn't have to make sense right now. I just trust you that you know what you're doing. I see God's providential hand all over Moses' life here in Exodus chapter two. How else, do you, how else can you explain away that a Hebrew child that should have never survived past one day of life but he did, he survived this, this horrible Egyptian Pharaoh's order and then he winds up growing up in his very home of the guy that ordered it to begin with. It's called God's providence. And I believe that God today 
is just as much involved in each of our lives as he was with Moses back then. Romans 8, 28 says this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. I'd love for you to wrestle with two questions today. In fact, I'm gonna ask you to write these down or if you want, they're in the app, they're written down for you. But I would like for each of us to wrestle with these two questions this week and really think through about it. And I'm gonna frame these questions in the first person for you. When was a time in my life that I can look back and see God's providence? A time when the Lord was guiding you through life and was working through you to accomplish his purposes, even if you didn't realize it at the time. Can, can you think back at some examples or some circumstances that didn't make sense back in the day, but you can totally see what God was doing then as it relates to today. Here's another question that I think we should all wrestle with. When was a time in my life that I can look back and see God's preparation? God's preparation. In other words, looking back in time just a little bit, but now you can clearly see that what God was doing then was preparing you for what you are doing now or something that you had gone through. That preparation might have involved a, a really challenging experience or it could have involved some really incredible experiences. The preparation that you look back on could have been an extremely difficult season or a difficult relationship or it could be God bringing some incredible people into your life at just the right time. What are those relationships? What are those events that God has used to prepare you for today? If you're familiar with the life of Esther in the Bible, Esther found herself in a perfect position to step in and save her people. And Mordecai came to her and he said these famous words in the Bible, Esther chapter four, verse 14. He says to her, you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Moses here in Exodus chapter two finds himself growing up in Pharaoh's household, but what God was really doing was preparing him, was positioning him for what is to come. Now we know from the Bible that Moses will spend the first 40 years of his life in Egypt. Most of that time, he will be a member of Pharaoh's household. We know that he received a great education. And if you think about the ancient Egyptians, what they accomplished and what they were into, they were well advanced, well beyond what we might think they knew. So Moses received the best education when it came to their culture and their religion, their politics, their engineering. I mean, these are the people that we still can't completely figure out how they preserve bodies and they last listen. These are guys that built the engineered buildings that still make us scratch our heads to this day. He received all that training. But at the same time, he never abandoned his identity as a Hebrew. He always knew that he was a Hebrew growing up as an Egyptian royal. And so you have in Hebrews chapter 11 some more details about that time of his life. It says in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And that had to have been a little bit of a slap in the face, don't you think, to Pharaoh's daughter? We raised you. We care. If it wasn't for me, you'd have drowned in the water. Uh, can you imagine the conversations around the dinner table? He goes, you're not my real mom. You know, I don't, I don't know what, um, <laughs> I don't know. But what the Bible tells us is that um, he never identified 
with the Egyptians. He always maintained his identity as a Hebrew. But I am confident he took advantage of all of the associations that were available to him as well. But we know very little, honestly, about Moses' first 40 years of life. The Bible tells us about his first three months, the circumstances surrounding how he came to Pharaoh's household. We know about his education. We know he never lost his identity as a Hebrew. But we also know something else about Moses from his earlier life. And it's this. Moses had this real sense of justice in him. He had a real sense of justice in his mind. To Moses anyway, right or wrong, he had his own way of looking at the world and this is good and this is bad. He had his own compass about righteousness and things that were wrong. And I think that it becomes pretty clear as you read the next couple of verses that Moses, probably not fully informed, did see himself as a rescuer, as a deliverer of the Israelites. Now, he's probably drawing some conclusions here of just saying to himself, maybe what we would say, why in the world was I spared? I must have been spared for something. Well, why was I the one that was plucked out of the water? Uh, maybe from his earlier years, and there's no reason to think that he ever lost contact with his family. Maybe his mother told him, we knew from the day you were born that God had a special calling on your life. That's why we took such great care in, 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 in washing over you. That's why we did what we did, because God's gonna use you. I, I can deduce this. I think Moses, based on some of his behavior that we know about, I think he saw himself as Israel's rescuer. Why else would I be where I am? And, and we start to see this picture unfold in the very next verse. Look at verse 11 of chapter two. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, that's the Hebrews, and watched them at their hard labor. What was their hard labor? Brick making and working the fields, okay? So he's probably standing out there watching what seems like an endless rows of bricks, and he sees the Hebrews there. He saw an Egyptian, now this most likely was one of the slave masters, beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, I shared with you last week that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So what that means is Moses, with his own hand, wrote the words that we are reading. And in light of that, I find it awfully interesting, maybe even on the fascinating level, that the very first thing that Moses decides to tell us about his adult life is how he murdered somebody. I don't know, if I was gonna write down my story, I'm not sure I'm gonna be the, like chapter one, let me tell you one of the worst things I ever did. But for whatever reason, Moses decides to, as an adult, I killed somebody. But he did it in a sense, at least we're gonna pull this out of the text a little bit, it seems like he did this as some sort of justice. So, like, I, I'm, I, I'm here to rescue you. Can't you guys see that? I find myself saying things like this quite often about a lot of things. You hear about something and you go, well, there's, I'm sure there's, there's more to that story than meets the eye. I would imagine there's more to this story than meets the eye. I don't think the Bible gives us every detail. Um, I would love to know all the things that went into this decision, but what we have is what we have and it sure makes me draw this conclusion that Moses saw himself as a Hebrew vigilante. 
the, the mass crusader, the, the guy that's gonna move in the shadows and find justice for the, for the Israelites. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but I, I think it's his response is what causes me to think that way. Because he's in for two rude awakenings the very next day. And the first one is this. It got discovered that he was the one that murdered the Egyptian. In other words, his mask just got ripped off and they know what I did. The second rude awakening, I think, was even a bigger shock. And that was he got rebuked for it by his own people. Look at verse 13. The, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. And Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. They didn't appreciate Moses at all. I mean, what he did was wrong, but he had this little sense in him that, well, I mean, I, what I did was good, wasn't it? I, I mean, how, how could you not see that this was a good thing? I protect, I'm protecting you. The New Testament actually tells us exactly what Moses was thinking. Acts chapter seven, verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Do, do you kind of sense in him, like, hey, I, this is a good thing. And they're like, no, it's a bad thing that you're doing this. Why? I think that tells us a lot. It tells us that Moses maybe saw himself as a deliverer, but what it also tells us is that his timing is way off. He is way in front of God. He is way in front of what God was doing. And Moses was not ready yet to be the deliverer, the rescuer that God had planned for him. So Pharaoh, when he found out about what Moses had done, he was so angry that he wanted Moses dead. I don't care that you're part of my house. I want you dead. And the Bible says that Moses wasn't really afraid of him, but he took off to the land of Midian. And you know what went with Moses as he escaped Egypt? That real strong sense of justice went with him. There's just something about Moses here that it seems like anyway, he just can't sit idly by and let somebody wrong another. And we say that because of the very next verse. He gets to, to Midian and he's hanging out by a well and he's probably sitting in the shade of the well and it's, it's a hot day and it, and it says this in verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, uh, to water their father's flocks. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. So in other words, you get the picture. You have these seven ladies. They're here getting water and these shepherds come in like, get out of our way. You don't deserve to be here. Beat it. And here you have Moses sitting by the same well going, mm-mm, this is not right. And it says the very next thing, some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Man, I don't know, but at this point in the Old Testament, for me anyway, Moses kind of seems like the Chuck Norris of the Bible. I'll just be honest with you, okay? He's like, no. No, we're not gonna have this. You're not gonna mistreat these ladies. There's this picture that gets painted of Moses that he's kind of a justice warrior a little bit. No, no, no. This isn't gonna happen. So he takes down an Egyptian who was beating one of his fellow Hebrews and now he takes on a whole group of shepherds and he wins. He's Chuck Norris. <laughs> now he doesn't kill any of these guys that we know about so maybe he's learned some lessons from before but he goes ahead and he's like, here ladies, let me get the water for you. 
I could say a whole lot more about this, but essentially, Moses trying to make things right and get some justice in Egypt actually put him out and put him on the run from his family. But this act of justice in a new country actually opened the door for Moses to be welcomed into a new family. He ends up marrying one of the, the ladies that were at the well that day. Now talk about a love story. Can you talk about telling your kids, yeah, your mom came up to the well, <laughs> looking all cute. And these guys, there was like uh, at least a hundred of them. And um, I said, no, not on my watch. And I beat him to a pulp and your mom fell in love with me. I, I don't know. Stories get embellished sometimes. But he ends up marrying one of the daughters and he has a whole brand new family and a whole brand new life and he settles down in Midian and he will live there for another 40 years. So what we're seeing in Exodus chapter two is we're seeing a very clear providential hand of God and we are seeing also the preparation of Moses. Now the book of Acts in the New Testament fills in some more details. We learn that Moses spends the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, followed by another 40 years in the land of Midian. That's right, Moses, in case you didn't know this, was in his 80s before God ever called him to go back to Egypt and rescue the Israelites. He was not a young man. And when he leads them out of Egypt, he will spend another 40 years of his life with the Israelites in the wilderness. So most people look at the timeline of Moses' life in a, in a set of 340s. 40 in Egypt, 40 in Midian, and 40 years in the wilderness. I love how James Boyce sums up Moses' life. He says, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. I want you to think about something because I think it's very significant for our lives. Moses would spend two years of preparation for every one year of service to God. Two years of preparation for every one year of service to the Lord. Two thirds of his life was spent getting ready. And friends, we live in a here and now culture, don't we? I want what I want. I want it to make sense. I want everything to come into place. I want all the pieces of the puzzle to come together and I want the picture to be painted right now. But you know what? I believe in a God who still might be preparing you for what comes next. And your whole life has been one big preparation for what comes next. And we see that with Moses. That's the providence of God and the preparation of God on full display. So, as we kind of wrap up here today, two questions I want you to wrestle with. When was a time in my life that I can look back and see God's providence? And if you'll spend some time in quiet, thinking back how your life has unfolded to bring you here today, I promise you, you will think of those examples. And you will think of people that led you to Christ and you will think about conversations and you will think about situations and you'll think of it in terms of had that not happened there is no telling where I would be and you'll start to see God's providential hand and then I want you to wrestle with another question when was a time in my life that I can look back and see God's preparation and it kind of looks like this 
I would have never been able to face this had I never experienced that. Just like Moses. As a younger man was not ready to be the deliverer of the Israelites. But as an older man, he was. And I can promise you, he looked back on his life saying, um, it was those kind of things and these kind of circumstances that led me to be exactly where I needed to be for God's purposes right now. And I believe that God works just like that today. There's nothing in the scripture that says to me that God operates differently. Now let that sink in, that God is just as involved in your life as he was with Moses. Pretty powerful. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you as always. I will never stop thanking you for your holy word. Without it, we wouldn't know a thing. So Lord, thank you. And I, I pray, Lord, you help each of us understand not just the details or timeline of the Exodus, but that we would understand how these principles and truths apply to our Christian walk today. And Lord, I pray that we take away things from our reading of the scripture that helps us to be more like you and to live a more Christ-like life. Lord, I pray today that you help start help connecting some dots with our church family of what you've done in the past that prepared us for what we're doing today and what we will be doing tomorrow. Lord, give us some peace, I pray, in our hearts that even when things have been really rough, that we know you're still in control and that you're still working towards your purposes. Lord, I just pray that today you start to help us understand the way you move and work. And that we may not be able to understand, Lord, and there, there are times that we'll never know why things are the way they are. But in those moments, Lord, would you just help us be humble and just to say, but Lord, I trust you no matter what. I don't get it and you don't have to explain it to me, Lord but I trust you. That's your call. That is the call in our lives to live holy lives, a faithful life to trust the Lord. I don't get this, but I trust you and I trust that you get me, Lord. And I'm at peace. So Lord, this is our prayer today. Help us to understand some of these things. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.